0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dashran Johan. You're listening to What's Politics, where we delve into political concepts, ideas and questions and explore how they impact all of us. If you listened to this show over the past couple of years, you definitely would have heard me say the past four decades of neoliberalism, or the past four decades of neoliberal capitalism, numerous times over various topics and questions to try and understand various political economic problems of today. But what is so significant about the past four decades? What is neoliberalism? How did it change the world? As always, my guest is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie. He's a political economist and a political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Welcome back to the show, Peter. How are you? Thank you, Dashan. I'm doing okay. So, before we talk about neoliberalism, could you tell me what exactly is capitalism in its most authentic form so to speak as envisioned by adam smith in the 18th century
1: well uh if you listen to professor jacob Saul's talk uh he, he visited cuhk recently he would give you a very different answer about what adam smith thought about capitalism because he was very much uh, under the influence of his patrons who are large landowners and so in his view uh, you would you would definitely have the kind of like small business sort of capitalism, but the core of the economy would be agriculture. Like he believed that agriculture was the 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 wellspring of wealth in an economy. So he he doesn't track very well from a modern uh, perspective on that issue. But capitalism in its most basic form is just the the private ownership of the means of production, the private ownership of factories, uh, uh, technology all sorts of capital assets, uh, and minimal government interference in what private owners do with their property.
0: So what exactly is neoliberalism then? Is it a form of capitalism? What are the problems with classical capitalism that led us, or or led capitalists, to adopt the neoliberal framework?
1: Good question. I, I think you've got to go back to uh, I guess you could start roughly early 1900s. You had the the ideological justification for capitalism or the ideological understanding of capitalism just being economic liberalism. People should be free to do what they want to do with their property, and that's joined to the belief that if you have an entire system based on that principle, uh, it will reach an equilibrium state where everybody gets exactly what they put into the system you know, in direct proportion to the effort and the the value that they create. Well, by the the 1920s and 1930s, with the Great Depression in so many countries around the world, uh, the the economic liberal response was, well, we don't need to do anything. Government shouldn't do anything. The the capitalist economy will, on its own accord, if left alone, fix itself. It'll go back to that imagined, beautiful equilibrium state that we make these mathematical models of and claim uh, have some... You know, relevance to the real world. So just if government stays out of it, it everything will, will get better. Uh, things didn't get better. So everyone in the 1930s who was a, uh, an intellectual of any sort and looking out at the real world around them uh, came to the conclusion that economic liberalism was bunk, that uh, what the proponents of economic liberalism had promised did not come to pass and that there would need to be a significantly greater government intervention in the economy to fix the, the shortcomings, the problems of the, the kind of liberal capitalist system. So it was in the 1930s that you have the, the birth of neoliberalism. And this is a bunch of uh, disaffected economic liberals who are looking around and realizing they are losing the ideological war massively.
0: Who are they losing to?
1: Well, they were losing to socialists and fascists. So on the right, uh, fascists were uh, arguing that the government needed to massively intervene in the economy, take control uh, of the economy, direct the economy with the cooperation and connivance of large capitalists, people who owned a lot of the means of production, lots of factories, et cetera. And socialists on the left were arguing that the government needed to massively intervene in the economy, but either use public ownership of massive factories, take them over, nationalize them, and to do so with the the, the ultimate aim of improving working conditions, improving quality of life for the people. Uh, Walter Lippmann, an early uh, neoliberal in the 30s, uh, called uh, the economic liberals of his day, quote-unquote, moss backs. Uh, right. This is an insult that is not used anymore, but <laughs> you can imagine what it means, just like a, a stone in a stream doesn't move at all and therefore accumulates moss all over it. Uh, The economic liberals of the 1930s were were people that didn't change their views, even though reality around them had massively disconfirmed their beliefs. So the the early neoliberals then were trying to revivify economic liberalism uh, by being much more creative in how they imagined the capitalist economy. They basically accepted... The fact that government would have to play a much stronger role, whereas the early economic liberals believed that marketplaces were just sort of natural outgrowths of of human interaction uh, without needing very much government support whatsoever except to enforce contracts and have police, et cetera. Uh, The economic neoliberals of the 1930s realized that uh, governments shape markets, governments construct markets. So governments are always going to be intimately involved in the marketplace, so uh, that's the the birth of neoliberalism, and then of course it changes quite a bit over the next century.
0: Is it fair to say that neoliberalism is a sort of co-option of the state or governments to work for the bourgeoisie?
1: Uh in a, in a way, but you could also kind of say the same thing about fascism, right? Mm-hmm. So in in this case, it's it's not so much the government taking control. Like, I think that they would the early neoliberals would would blanch at that uh, formulation, right? Right. They would say, oh, we we don't like that. They would say instead that uh, markets don't just emerge spontaneously. They always are constructed through law and through the enforcement of law. So because the government is is inextricably intertwined with markets, they 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 construct them in the first place, they need to be constantly vigilant in maintaining those markets, like a, like a garden. And then uh, later on in the, the 20th century, you have uh, more, I guess, radical neoliberals who, who think that since the, the marketplace is this incredible ultimate information processor, that we should organize as many aspects of life according to market principles or, or uh, according to a market framework.
0: So, to understand it a little bit clearer, what is the difference and, and overlaps and and distinction between classical capitalism and neoliberalism
1: well the the fundamental thing is that uh, I, I would I would just call it economic liberalism and neoliberalism, but it's fair enough to just call it capitalism and then neoliberal capitalism. It's just semantics doesn't really matter right uh, but the the early economic liberals they had this belief that uh, marketplaces are just sort of a natural phenomenon. Humans are, are given toward trade, exchange, barter, et cetera. Markets kind of create themselves, and then governments play a very minor role in enforcing contracts, et cetera. But generally, governments should be as small as possible. There should just be a night watchman state. And so the, the neoliberals uh, make a, a break from that older classical economic liberalism by recognizing the, the, just the reality. I mean, they're they're not... It's impossible to argue with them on this point that markets are a, a function of government or rather not a function. they're They're constructed and maintained by government. If you don't have uh, a, a legislature that passes laws and courts that enforce them, you're not going to have a marketplace or maybe you'll have a marketplace that looks like, you know, uh, drug cartels because you don't have any structure enforcement. Right. So I'd say that's the the, the biggest uh, uh, difference between the early neoliberals and the kind of classical economic liberals. But as neoliberalism sort of evolves uh, during the course of the, the 20th century, it ends up going back to a lot of uh, at least the same kind of policy prescriptions hmm. uh, in that. They, they, they shrink away from the 1930s neoliberals openness and, and experimentation with different forms of government intervention to actually help uh, you know, working people, unemployed people. The, the neoliberals by the end of the century had basically gone back to the old economic liberalism of uh, minimal government intervention, at least when it comes to uh, fixing problems that the market itself creates.
0: So, which brings me to the past four decades. What is significant about the past four decades? What's unique about it? Why do political economists and thinkers keep bringing it up in discourse?
1: Because it's it's the most influential, powerful, ideological shift mm-hmm. uh, in the, the, the past century, probably. Uh, it it basically, there, there was this transition from what's called... Uh, uh, the Keynesian era from the '40s to the '70s, but uh, starting in the in the '70s, you have the shift to the neoliberal era, and that was a a sea change, a, a, a massive difference in uh, government policy and the way that uh, the government intervened in society and the economy. In terms of effects, you know, we can just look at the the economic data over the past you know century, really. Uh, during the, the so-called golden age of capitalism after World War II, from the 40s to the 70s, global growth rates, GDP growth rates, uh, particularly in the in the poorer parts of the world, what used to be called the third world back when there was a second world, a socialist world, uh, they were higher during that era, 40s to 70s, than they were from the 80s to today. Uh, so that's the the, the most obvious uh, difference. It's just poorer performance in economic growth. Uh, particularly when you take China out of the, the, the calculation, which did not uh, follow you know the, the kind of neoliberalism that was dominant in the US and Europe uh, at that time, uh, the 80s till today. Mm-hmm. Um, so' that's, that's the, the main effect. But then there's there's all sorts of, of other effects. You know you have a lot of uh, scholars in the humanities that write about neoliberalism in a very different way from political economists. They talk more about the, the kind of mindset, uh, that that people adopt or are taught in neoliberal economic uh, systems and that they they focus on all sorts of other things like the the view of oneself as just a chunk of human capital that you know you you go to school not to educate yourself to become a, a, a fuller, more well-rounded human being and member of society, but rather you educate yourself, to, to create more human capital that you can then sell off to an employer who views you as more valuable because of the education. So there, there's, there's a whole other uh, perspective on neoliberalism that focuses more on, you could say it's like the psychological or, or maybe even you could call it the spiritual uh, uh, side of, of the effects of neoliberal policies. But just the, the simple economic analysis would be during the neoliberal era, you, you saw lower growth rates uh, overall in the world and you saw the, uh, a massive increase in inequality uh, around the world as well.
0: Before and, we go for a break, how has the neoliberal ideology, the, the approach, affected the overall function and powers of government institutions um, across the world over the past 40 years?
1: Well, it's puzzling to, to some people who look at uh, neoliberalism and they just think of it as the same as the old economic liberalism. You know, all this talk about having a small state because uh, governments across the industrialized world have grown in size and number of employees and in, right. in spending, et cetera. Uh, but the, the, the function of government under neoliberalism is not to uh, correct the, 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 the negative effects that uh, capitalist markets have, you know, like uh, providing a, a generous social safety net, uh, uh, providing a, a, a job uh, guarantee from the government. Although, ironically, one of the early neoliberals, Friedrich von Hayek, in his book Road to Serfdom, uh, accepted the idea of a government job guarantee. But neoliberalism changed quite a bit uh, during the course of the 20th century. So by the time it's actually implemented in policy, that sort of thing is is anathema. It, it it's viewed as you cannot do it. It's a it's a terrible idea. Governments should be facilitating markets, uh, massive uh, subsidies to to uh, private industry. Like in the U.S., you have uh, the Defense Department pouring uh, untold sums of money into basic R and D that then becomes the the internet, etc. But you also just have. Uh, uh, a reduction in the government role in antitrust, for instance, like less government interference in the economy to split up uh, monopolies and ensure competition, uh, but plenty of government intervention in order to uh, facilitate business growth. Uh, so it, it's, it's a fundamental change in uh, perspective from the idea that markets often get themselves into serious problems. And markets often result in suboptimal outcomes. They, they create suffering that needs to be redressed and fixed by the government, shifting from that view of a capitalist economy to the view that uh, generally, if, if left alone in terms of regulation, anything that business owners don't like, the economy will work out perfectly fine. But markets themselves need a lot of government support uh, and that's the, the, really the key difference between economic liberalism and neoliberalism.
0: On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beatty. He's a political economist and a political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. We will continue this discussion after the break. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to What's Politics on Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashan Johan, And with me, as always, is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie. He's a political economist and a political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And we're talking about neoliberalism. This conversation will also be available on podcast, so do subscribe to us. You can look up Beyond the Ballot Box on the BFM app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. So, Peter... How has neoliberalism impacted society at large, um, including income inequality, social mobility, and the distribution of resources?
1: Sure. Inequality has gone up significantly. Mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> that is income inequality within countries has has gone up. The gap between the income people receive is larger in the neoliberal era than during the the you know, 30 glorious years of capitalism or the golden age, as it's called. Um, And also, more importantly, wealth inequality. So that goes to your question about the distribution of resources. Uh, More and more resources are concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. So social mobility has also gone down, at least in the U.S. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that's uh, also the case throughout the industrialized world that adopted neoliberal policies to differing extents. Um, but certainly in the U.S., social mobility is uh, uh, has gone down during the, the neoliberal era so that, you know, it's it's ironic for people in the U.S. because we have this, you know, American dream. The, 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 the kind of founding mythology is that it's a land where you can always do better than your parents if you just try hard. Uh, but I, I think the uh, the comparison countries I saw in a, a study a few years back was it might have been. Denmark and and uh, Netherlands and the UK there's actually more social mobility now in Europe uh, than in the US which goes very much against our kind of national identity of being different from the old feudal Europe with their aristocracies and their 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 cemented historical privileges well uh, after the uh, you know 40 years of neoliberalism you actually have more social mobility in old formerly feudal aristocratic Europe than in the u.s
0: did neoliberalism bring about anything good at all to society, such as you know a more entrepreneurial mindset, uh, for example?
1: I mean, speculatively, that that might be the case, mm-hmm. uh, but it would be really hard to provide evidence for it. I, I certainly haven't seen anyone provide uh, convincing evidence that there's been some efflorescence of, of entrepreneurialism that is qualitatively different or quantitatively also different from the uh, the you know the golden age of of capitalism, so I, I think any sort of benefit along those lines of of uh, increasing entrepreneurialism is is highly speculative, um, and even if you were to do a an empirical analysis, if you're including China, you're going to see you know a massive growth in entrepreneurialism if you measure it in the form of like new business openings right. uh, in China, but that's it would be kind of foolish to ascribe that to uh, a benefit of neoliberalism.
0: You know, some will contest that and say that China only began to grow once it buried the ideas of socialist thinkers and all of that and mm-hmm. embraced capitalism and, and mm. went down the path of neoliberalism as well. How would you respond to that?
1: like in in a in a certain sense there's there's some truth in that perspective like you know the the reform and opening period was basically uh, a recognition that china was not going to catch up in all areas of technology under a command economy that was separated from the rest of the world right where they couldn't get you know import the latest technology and then build off of that. They had to you know, reinvent the wheel a million times for every single uh, technological advance uh, because they couldn't just import that, that, that technology and that know-how. So reform and opening is basically the, the adoption of certain aspects of capitalist markets. Uh, and the, the fundamental deal was, and this is simplifying very much, but for a short answer, the fundamental deal was you, global capital, uh, come in and bring technology transfer. You build factories here, you bring uh, the technology we don't have, and we'll learn from that and uh, develop our own technologies down the road. But first we need that, that, that big, sweet technology transfer. In exchange, we, China, will give you, global capital, a highly exploitable workforce. You can pay them very little, uh, you can uh, uh, not give them very good conditions at work, uh, because that's what you demand. That's what international investors demand. So you get that, and we get tech transfer. So of course, in in that kind of a transition from a, a command economy that's cut off from the, the much of the rest of the world, the richest parts of the rest of the world, to a uh, environment in which there are plenty of 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 investment connections between the rest of the world and China. All sorts of investors are, building factories there because they want to take advantage of that cheap, exploitable labor, of course, you're going to see massive economic growth. And a lot of people also will point to uh, income levels. They'll say, well, look, uh, the average income in in China in the 70s was X, and by the 80s, it had increased, in the 90s, it had increased, in the 2000s, it had increased even further. But there was a a, a recent uh, analysis of this uh, by uh, Jason Hickel and another uh, uh, economist, I forget Uh, who the co-author was, but they look instead, they say, okay, fine, income story, sure. But what actual access to resources did people have? Because if you're living in a society where you don't pay for rent, you don't uh, pay with cash for all sorts of goods and services that you use in life, well, then your income is going to look very low. But in terms of your actual quality of life, your access to resources, you're going to be doing perfectly fine. What they found was when you look at access to resources, uh, the the, uh, sort of average uh, Chinese person's quality of life actually dipped uh, in the 80s and 90s, particularly in the 90s when you had the shutdown of all these state-owned enterprises. Um, But I think, if I'm not mistaken in their analysis, by the 2000s, late 2000s, 2010s, it started to, to go back up. So by that point, Ah, uh, the the increase in cash income uh, more than made up for the decrease in state provided services and goods.
0: Michael Sandel, who is a Harvard um, philosopher, um, he wrote some brilliant books such as The Moral Limits of Markets and also The Tyranny of Merit. Um, he has said, you know, something which I find quite profound. Um, and it's worded really powerfully, I think. And and it goes over the past forty years. We've gone from a market economy to a market society. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Could you contextualize that?
1: yeah, that that uh, very well encapsulates the the extension or or further evolution of neoliberal thought uh, towards the end of the the twentieth century. Not just a recognition that markets are are kind of co-created by government and constantly supported and and facilitated by government. But the, the further belief that because markets are such a brilliant, amazing, godlike information processor, uh, we should try to organize all areas of, of human society according to market principles. Hmm. I guess uh, I'll just use the example of like a, a university. Uh, it's very hard to turn something like learning into a, a marketplace, right? right? But you can think of it as uh, the, the the shift towards more measurement And numerification, quantification of things that can't really be quantified, like you know how well somebody teaches. Um, So you you have the 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 university kind of reconceptualized as a business that it's not it's not uh, doesn't have the social goal of of increasing the the educational level, the intellectual level, the 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 kind of human holistic human uh, uh, being, improving that. No. It's selling a service, educational services, and it also sells degrees, which are uh, like markers of human capital. And so that kind of changes the way that everyone in the university interacts on a day-to-day basis. Instead of thinking of, you know, I, my main goal is ensuring that students become fuller human beings with, with greater knowledge and capacity to act as, as effective, good citizens, you're instead thinking of them as customers. Uh-oh, I better... Uh, change this aspect of my course or my grading to make sure I get more customers in my class and that they give me higher ratings. Uh, you know this this whole it's a whole ethos that that he's describing. so from a, a marketplace economy to a marketplace society, he's talking about that extension of kind of market worship the idea that that market organization is this you know amazing the greatest way of organizing anything at any time in in history outside of the purely economic realm to all sorts of other aspects of human life creating a market society
0: one of the things that uh, that is often brought up when discussing neoliberalism is how you know it also brought about this idea of privatization, you know, private hospitals and, and private schools. Um, I mean, not that it didn't exist before, but it really started to take over societies. It, mm. it You know, it started to mushroom a lot more. You start to see a lot more private schools, private hospitals, so on and so forth. I'm, I'm wondering, what is the problem with this? What are people um, not understanding? Because sometimes people say, "Oh, but there's nothing wrong with, it, with a private hospital, for example. You know, it, it's, it's useful to have choices and, and options, or sometimes the critique of this privatization um, is seen as, you know, um, why are you critiquing something that could be efficient? Talk to me about the commodification of human needs um, under mm. neoliberalism. And and what exactly is wrong with this idea of you know sort of unfettered privatization?
1: Well, fundamentally, the, the the core error in that thinking is this kind of deification. Like you're you're making a god out of markets, the market. You know, I almost want to cross <laughs> myself or or say blessed be the markets or whatever. Um, but it, it's it's rooted in this belief, and it's really just faith. It's it's a matter of faith. It's magical thinking that markets are this godlike information processor. And and there is a kind of kernel of of truth there, like the the whole price system. The idea is that, you know, what does a high price for, I don't know, cocoa uh, tell us? Well, if if a market is functioning according to theory, what it's telling us is that there isn't enough investment in producing cocoa and That's why there's a high price, because the demand is higher than the supply. So that price signal is then going to tell people, I need to go and invest in a, you know, some sort of cocoa agricultural production, right? Because I'm going to make more money. Uh, that's the, the kind of core truth in this exaggerated deification of, of markets that yes, markets can transmit and process information, uh, very efficiently and effectively in some cases. But then they go further from that and say, because the market is this godlike information processor, why don't we use it in every single area of life, including healthcare? Well, the reason why you might not want to use it in healthcare is that the profit motive uh, in that area of human need can produce all sorts of perverse uh, results. First of all, you know the most obvious thing is what do people without money do? Well, uh, if you're really going according, according to pure neoliberal principles, you die. You, you need to go and make money, and then you can live. And if you don't make money, well, then that's your fault. That's your problem. You're, you're a, a marketplace participant. You failed, so you don't get to go to the hospital and, and get better. Uh, so that's the kind of the, the worst aspect of, of extending this market deification to uh, – all sorts of areas of, of human life, including healthcare. That fundamental belief led people to think that privatization was going to result in always more efficient production of goods and services. Just by definition, because that's their faith at, right. at the very starting point. So we have seen this experiment play out. Uh, you know, the the trains, for instance, in the UK uh, were privatized. Uh, that did not result in what. Ah, uh, the faith, the belief would predict the the train system in the U.K. is worse uh, than it was before and more expensive, and you can understand that as the result of private individuals owning these assets and seeking to maximize their profits, and you know the the, the neoliberals would say, well, the, the, that's a that's a problem because there wasn't enough competition. Governments really needed to step in and intervene more in the in the market to create more competition. But, you know, it starts to, to sound very much like ad hoc excuses for the, the failure of what was, I remember this very well in the 1990s, a very uh, strident uh, set of beliefs that privatization was just obviously good. But, you know, I, we can tell it, it it has some serious problems.
0: You know, you, you tend to hear, you know, if whenever there's a critique against neoliberalism, um, you know, people will talk about how, you know, you're just anti-markets as a concept. But in under neoliberalism, to me at least, um, I would love to know your thoughts. It see, feels like markets aren't even functioning as how markets are supposed to, or, or this or this belief that people have in the first place. Because if you go to an actual market, like like a, like a wet market, um, I think it functions like how a market should function. Or if you just go to a small town and then you have a bunch of restaurants, if one restaurant has really good food for affordable prices and another restaurant has terrible food for unaffordable prices, you know, the one with the good food and the affordable prices will survive. The one with the bad food and unaffordable prices will probably not survive that, 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 that small town, right? Um, you also, mm-hmm. for example, you also have, may have two grocery stores. If you're selling bread, if there are 10 people and 10 loaves of bread, then you know that the price remains if there are 9 people and 10 loaves of bread the price goes down if there are mm-hmm. you know eight loaves of bread and 20 people then the price will go up that mm-hmm. that's that seems like how a market should function but but what we are seeing today and especially over the past 40 years at least from my vantage point is you have a lot of housing and a lot of homelessness at the same time you have a lot of demand for affordable housing but nobody's building houses that people can afford and so you you have all these luxury housing coming about but people can't afford it you know that the law of supply and demand there's a complete mismatch
1: exactly i mean what you said is is completely accurate that there are massive flaws in this kind of marketplace thinking in its application to various different goods and services that people need like there are, you know the, the example i always go back to about uh the the brilliance and genius of markets is during disasters the price of basic goods like water uh shoots up <laughs> and according to that you know basic way of looking at markets it's it's that's what's supposed to happen this is a price signal that's telling us these people need water, so let's invest more in producing water and shipping it to the place where people need. And my response is always, well, duh, like everyone knows this, we don't need a price signal to tell us that people need water in an emergency. And I think that there are aspects of human needs that we don't need a a market system in order to tell us uh, what we need to produce. And in fact, market signals can be very distorted because, you know, that, I, ideally, you would have everyone with roughly similar amounts of money, and they're expressing their needs through their purchases. But if you have money extremely concentrated in any one group, you're going to have distorted, in a, in a real human need sense, market signals. Uh, just think if all of the money in the world were concentrated in the hands of children only, what sort of market signals are they going to send? that they want candy and toys. The economy (laughs) should all be about producing candy and toys. And that's what a a market system, the price system would produce given that distribution of money. So the the price signal is very dependent on the distribution of money. And in in areas of basic human needs like housing, education, healthcare, et cetera, uh, we don't need the price signal to, or the price system to tell us uh, what is needed. That's an area where markets have not worked very well at all. And, you know, there's plenty of problems with uh, with direct government kind of command economy uh, production of the goods and services we need. But the, the thing I always say is there's no such thing in, in our world as a solution without problems. Our choices are between one set of problems and another set of problems. When government produces all uh, health care, all education, uh, uh, all housing, you can run into problems there with corrupt officials, uh, uh, bad planning, etc. But that set of problems, in my view, is much more desirable than the set of problems of massive homelessness, uh, people who are, who are paying half of their income just to be housed, uh, a, a lack of building affordable housing because all of the developers want to go for the highest returns in the luxury market. And there are plenty of people with so much concentrated wealth that they can purchase houses the way that they purchase stocks as a mere investment. So you know, in, in my view, it's a it's always a choice between different sets of problems, and I'd much rather deal with a set of problems with potential corruption, potential inefficiency, uh, potential bad design, or or bad decisions on where to build a, a hospital or school or what have you by government, because at least there there's a at least potential democratic uh, method of controlling and fixing the problems that are inherent in that way of providing these basic services.
0: I want to circle back to what you mentioned um, before the break um, about the the philosophical aspect of it all, how individuals view themselves and their relationship with society at large under neoliberalism. Um, Two of the most popular neoliberal icons, if we can call them that, uh, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, but keeping in mind that you know these people. You know these ideas permeated in all parts of the world, including Malaysia. We had our Mahadars and and whatnot. Uh, one thing I noticed, Peter, uh, noticed uh, when watching back a lot of Thatcher's old speeches, is how she ties the neoliberal economic model with this idea of individualism, and also the idea of a nuclear family, and and how those two things are a core of everything I, I'm wondering how the concept of family and individual' um, changed over the past 40 years under neoliberalism wow
1: that's a that's a big question first I would just say that like when when Thatcher said that famous statement about you know there there is no society there are individuals and maybe I think she said maybe families right uh, I'm not I'm not sure if that's exactly but I think the whole addition of family to that, That mixture was uh, a sop thrown to (laughs) conservatives. Uh, That's not part of of classical liberal thinking. It's not part of neoliberal thinking. It's really all about individuals, because that's how the economy is modeled in their abstract mathematical models of the economy that they use to, to derive policy advice for the real world. So I'd say just throw out families from that formulation, but To answer the question, you know, what are the the effects of neoliberal uh, policies on individuals and families? Well, I would just go back to the the three items you asked about previously, Uh, inequality, uh, social mobility and the distribution of resources. All of those things, you've seen a reduction in mobility, an increase in wealth and income inequality. And of course, the wealth inequality part means a more concentrated division of resources. So what's that going to do to individuals and families? Well, for those who, are, who, who don't start life off with a significant amount of, of capital, uh, that's going to increase uh, competitiveness, uh, uh, not in a, in a good sense, like in a sports game or you know, uh, a bunch of businesses competing, like your example of the restaurants, but kind of a, a vicious struggle for survival where other people are viewed as potential enemies who, are, who, are, who might lay claim to a, a very limited pool of, of direly needed resources. So I think it, it causes a, a lot or has caused a lot of uh, psychological problems. I mean, we've seen uh, rates of depression skyrocket in the US, for instance, uh, drug use, etc. Uh, there's a very good argument to make that that's directly tied to the pain caused by the economic system, that when you have this, this massive inequality, this sense of precarity. I, I can't trust that I'm going to have my job. I can't trust that I'm going to have my home because what if the rent goes up or what if I lose my job and I can't pay rent? All of these worries and anxieties eating away at people and and breaking apart normal human social bonds because instead of being viewed as you know a, a co-citizen or a neighbor or a member of the community, they're viewed as competitors. They, they might be taking... Uh, a piece of my very limited pie, or rather uh, a piece of my teeny tiny slice of the pie.
0: At one point, Peter, um, you know unions were very strong. um or in many parts of the world. Um, there were, you know, strong labor organizations fighting for better housing, better health care, better wages, um, and then, you know, expanded beyond that in in the Global South, unions were part of the anti-colonial movements. There was an internationalist sense of solidarity among the working class and, and so on and so forth. Um, now um you know especially after the the over the past 40 years we see a, a massive decline in in unionization rates um and we are also seeing, this, this sort of hyper-individualization in terms of trying to solve problems. We discussed a little bit, of, uh, I mean, we discussed, uh, you know, v- very much in depth in, in the past episode about, you know, just thinking of things from an individual perspective, you know, going to hustle culture, um, picking up, you know, self-help books from Jordan Peterson, as opposed to, you know, <laughs> participating in, in, in political action, collective action and, and things like that. I'm wondering what's the impact of neoliberalism on this shift in, 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 in our landscape?
1: Well, there, I think the, the early neoliberals of the 30s were much more open to uh, to unions playing a constructive role in an economy. Mm. I This is a vague recollection. I think uh, uh, in Walter Lippmann's book, The Good Society, uh, he was more open to, to, to unions. But over the course of the 20th century, neoliberalism uh, evolved in a direction that looks much more like the old economic liberalism, wherein, because, again, the starting point of analyzing the economy is the individual consumer and and, and worker or producer. So there's no room in that uh, kind of metaphysic for groups of people that organize and act as one. Uh, unions are viewed as uh, a, a kind of... Uh, uh, Gum in the in the in the machinery of an otherwise perfectly working economic system, where individuals are negotiating directly with employers. Uh, so you have during the neoliberal era in the U.S. a lot of changes in the law that make it harder and harder for people to unionize. Uh, probably the most uh, prominent example would be so-called right-to-work laws, which uh, basically disallow unions from. Uh, saying, okay, we unionize the workforce at this factory. Now, every new employee, once you get the job, you are also automatically a member of the union and you automatically pay union dues. Well, right-to-work laws take that away from unions with the express design, this express intent of making it harder and harder to unionize and to weaken unions. So part of the whole neoliberal era has been the, the decline in union membership, the decline in the, the power of unions to Uh, exert leverage over employers to improve working conditions and wages. So that's very much uh, an effect of the neoliberal era.
0: And before we wrap this conversation up, Peter, how do we imagine a future beyond neoliberalism? What could that look like? What is the work that needs to be done to get there? Well,
1: I think at the most... Fundamental level, it's it's ideological work. It's mm-hmm. it's educating people on the history of economic development, so that they know that uh, in all past successful cases of industrialization and and economic modernization, from Holland to the to the UK uh, to France to the U.S. to Germany to Japan to Korea to China. All of the the examples that we have today of successful industrialization all included significant government intervention in the economy, whether it was by uh, tariffs to protect domestic uh, industry to to build to the point where they could be competitive, uh, whether that's export promotion, uh, subsidies from the government to businesses to help them sell more abroad, and and through that uh, becoming more competitive internationally, uh, it's always been every successful example of development has included some form of government manipulation, if you want to call it that, or intervention in markets. So once people uh, grasp that and stop looking at government as this inherently, unavoidably inefficient sort of institution that is always outclassed by our brilliant uh, private entrepreneurs, <laughs> uh, then we can start thinking about What else do we need government to do? What else can government do better than leaving it up to markets? Basic human needs that we know people need. We don't need the price signal to figure out that people need a doctor when they're sick. Uh, We don't need the price signal to figure out that people need a house over them or that people need to be educated because we in society want uh, everyone else in our same society to have a good education. These are things that government can provide, and we can have democratic uh, influence and control over. Uh, but that, I think, the that basic ideological work, the the change in belief, uh, the change in the the recognition of what is possible to do. You know, one of the key phrases of of the early neoliberal era, you know, the nineteen eighties, was "TINA." There is no alternative, and and that was the 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 you know a key selling point or or or. Pushing point, I guess, uh, for neoliberal policies. Well, the the first step to me would be recognizing that there very much is an alternative, uh, alternatives that have proven to be far more successful in actual historical, empirical experience uh, than neoliberalism, and that we can use these other means to much better serve human needs.
0: Peter, on that note, thank you so much for joining me again.
1: My pleasure, Dashran.
0: That was Assistant Professor Peter Beattie, political economist and a political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. If you missed any part of this conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, Spotify, Apple, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast